Bridge is an acronym for books recycled to instruct, disciple, guide, and educate. We firmly believe that reading is critical for Christians to grow in their faith, and so we strive to make Bibles and gospel-based Christian books available at very affordable prices. Our purpose is to share the glorious good news of Jesus Christ through written and spoken word. We do this by providing resources and educational opportunities for people to grow in their knowledge of biblical truth so that they are equipped to share that truth with others. You can visit our website at bridgebookstexas.org where you can find our reformed podcast, Bridge Radio, where we bring on Christian authors, apologists, and scholars such as Dr. James White, Dr. John Frame, Joe Beakey, Jeff Durbin, John Sampson, and Tim Trumpert. You can find Bridge Radio on iTunes, Android, Windows, and Google Play or stream via our website. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in christ jesus all scripture is god breathed and is used useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work second timothy chapter 3 verses 15 through 17 and coming at you from the great state of texas GXs. proclaiming the gospel faithfully and fearfully we're back with another episode of bridge radio and the man across from me who went texas in that southern drawl he's not from texas but <laughs> i'm got, from chicago from chicago hey but you got down here the yeah. fastest that you could right yes yes that, i've, I've, that's I've what embraced matters. Yes, he wasn't I, born here yeah, but i wasn't he got here as yeah, fast I was, as he could. yeah i'm from chicago i just embrace uh texas uh, life since i moved down here so what, what do, you, do you love texas would you say it, over, over illinois uh no but <laughs> i love i love texas as the second best place but i love chicago that's that's uh, i was born and bred as the english said there so yeah uh, all right and then to the right of me we got the president of the ministries mr steve den hartog what's up y'all good to be with you today so today um well this is your new uh first time listening to bridge radio uh, radio thank you so much for for tuning in um please subscribe we're on iTunes, Android, Windows, Google Play. We got our app, and just share with your family, your friends, your brothers and sisters, and your uh, cats and dogs, and just just spread it all around. Yeah. Spread it all around. Today, we got a really good podcast for you today. Um, you could tell my, my co-host here, I had a really difficult time nailing down questions in the topic today, because it's such a broad topic, right? Yeah. The, 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 the issue of, of canon, the topic of canon, and so today, uh, we're going to be talking about canon, and we have uh, a guest who I'm super excited to, to have on for the very first time. He's an author of a book titled Canon Revisited, Establishing the Origins and Authority of the New Testament Books. Uh, and he's his, his material, his writing, his blogs has been a tremendous blessing to us here at the ministry. And uh, we're just super excited to have him on. But um, before we, we, we dive into this discussion, um, I really kind of want to funnel down what, what I want to get to here today. First, obviously, the issue of canon, canonicity. So th- there is um, uh, different views of canon. So I hope to kind of start that discussion. Again, it's a very, very big uh, topic. So to get it at all, we're just not going to be able to do it in 45 minutes. There's just absolutely no way. And uh, and since Bridge Ministries is located and we're in a city that is predominantly Catholic, actually 66% 
of the pop- population is Roman Catholic. And not only that in our city, but also to in our in our region. So we live in the South Texas, and um, and so yeah, we, that number should. Do you think the higher that number is higher here in Laredo? I'm guessing it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's actually per facts uh, facts by city. So yeah. it's a website. I looked it up, and so that that was their updated hmm. statistic. Nice. And so just to get a, some some people some a grasp on that uh, per suburban stats, this is a 2017 to 2018 population of Laredo. This is the city that we're in. Um, we our population is 236,091. So that that stat. Uh, people affiliating with Roman Catholicism, which is 66%, that would estimate it out at 157,307 Laredo, Laredoans as Roman Catholics. So, um, just to kind of get a grasp on that, and then just our, our culture. So, I think it's a good difference. Uh, it's it's a good discussion to kind of unpack because the differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism comes down really to the issue of authority, how we view the scriptures, oh. and so um, uh, you know, a lot of people you'll ask here. Uh, you know why? Why? Why are you not? Or you're asking a Protestant? Why are you not a Roman Catholic? They'll say, "Well, you know, I, I don't agree with praying to the saints, uh, and the doctrine of Mary, et cetera, et cetera." And those are all like symptoms. Would you say? Yeah. Symptoms, and really the root issue is what it comes down to: canon, uh, to how we view the scriptures. And so we just hope to to unpack that. Um, I'm, I'm super excited. Let me go ahead and introduce our guest for today. Uh, he's the president of Samuel C. Patterson, professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in uh, Charlottesville, North Carolina. He's an ordained minister in the Press. Presbyterian Church in America, so he's a Presbyterian. It's cool, <laughs> and serves as an associate pastor. He's authored two excellent books, uh, again that I highly recommend. One of them being the Heresy of Orthodoxy, and the book that we'll kind of be diving into today, Canon Revisited: Establishing the Origins and Authority of the New Testament Books. And uh, as always, it's an honor and privilege uh, to have on for the first time, Dr. Michael J. Kruger. Thank you for coming on, brother. Thank you, guys. Great to be on the show. Yeah. So. I, I here at the ministry, uh, so you could know we're, we're a uh, Reformed Christian bookstore and coffee shop. So uh, we sell a, a lot of Reformed material, and we sell your books. And so when someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, can I get a kind of a, a Reformed perspective or a good perspective on on Canon?" I always say, "I, I got the I got the guy for you." I, I call I call you the Canon Man here for those who <laughs> for those who come. So very whether, good. So <laughs> whether you accept it or not, man, it's just what I call you around here. So you'll hear. It. I go. Oh, I, 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 the can maybe revisited. I'll add that to my uh, maybe I'll add that to my formal title. <laughs> yes. Yeah, man. So yeah, I call you Cannon Man around here. So um, for those who are unfamiliar with uh, Mr. Cannon Man, can you uh, kind of share your testimony of, of kind of coming to uh, you know writing the material that you do on Cannon? Yeah. Well, I think my story is probably uh, not that unique. I think what happened to me probably happens to many people. Uh, my interest in Cannon began as an undergraduate. I was at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill where I did my undergraduate work and found myself in a New Testament religion class. And the professor was very uh, critical of the New Testament, particularly the New Testament documents, the transmission of the New Testament text, and then even more than that, the collection of New Testament books. And he insisted that many of these books were forgeries and that they were cobbled together late and that there were many other books that could have been in that didn't make it. And uh, it was a standard sort of university experience. Mm-hmm. I suppose the the main difference is that 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 the guy was uh, was was learning from became a very famous 
professor, and that is Bart Ehrman. Mm-hmm. And so most people know Bart Ehrman's name, and uh, he was the one I first took a New Testament class from at UNC, and that sparked interest in these things. And as a young Christian, I didn't have an answer for them. I didn't know what to think, and Ehrman is very persuasive and very compelling, and I thought, wow, I need to, I need to dive into this and get some answers. And so that started me on a long journey. They ended up taking me, uh, you know, into all kinds of different areas, eventually into PhD work and, of course, eventually in the academic world as a professor. Gotcha. Michael, the problem of canon has been referred to as the Achilles heel of Protestant Christianity by Strauss. And Hermann Ritterboss said that, uh, has observed that the hidden dragging illness of the church is a problem of canon. Can you explain what the problem of canon is and why it is such a critical issue for us as? Orthodox Protestant Christians? Yeah, absolutely. I think most people actually intuitively know what the problem is, even if they can't articulate it. The fundamental issue at hand is sort of a how we know question. And the how we know question centers on which books belong in our New Testaments and how we know these are the right books. So we say we have 27 books in our New Testament. I mean, why not 26 or mm. why not 28? And if, there's our, if there are 27, why these 27 and not a different 27 books, and uh, that's a very critical question, because as believers, we claim uh, something called inspiration for the New Testament, and we say that there's things like a New Testament theology and a New Testament message, but you can't have any of that if you don't have a New Testament. You've got to have some ability to justify or account for why we read the books we do as from God, and if you can't account for that, then you're going to end up sort of speaking into the wind. You're not going to have any grounds for what you say. And so I think every Christian sort of intuitively recognizes you have to have some answer for why these books and no others. Um, and if you don't have an answer, you're just kind of flying blind. And one of the things I respond to in the book is I think many people on the critical side think that there is no answer, that Christians don't have an answer to the question of canon. Mm-hmm. And that we are flying blind, that it's just a, it's just a, a shot in the dark, and sure. that it's just all... Uh, sort of blind faith, and, and and I say no, I don't, I don't agree. I think there are answers to those questions, and of course, that's why I wrote the book. Great, and, and even on the the the, the question of inspiration, um, how does that look like? Because I know a lot of Christians might view that when they say inspiration, um, you know, as in the the writers, uh, God using the means as, of of man uh, writing uh, his words, uh, theonustas, um, as kind of this. Uh, you know, I'm rolling my eyes back and I'm, you know, writing down something with a pen. Um, can you kind of talk about how that's not the case? Maybe, maybe touch on a little bit of, of what inspiration looks like. What, 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 what do we mean by inspiration? Yeah, I think people have all kinds of different conceptions in their head um, that, that may or may not be accurate. I mean, you mentioned one, uh, which is sort of known as the mechanical theory of inspiration, which is this idea that the spirits sort of overtake somebody and they become more like secretaries that God dictates to, and so they just simply write down words they, you know, sort of spiritually hear, if you will, and they're, and they're more like uh, scribes than they are authors. Um, but that's not historically been the Church's view on inspiration. I mean, inspiration is, is a much more organic process, and what I mean by that is that, yes, we believe the Spirit is inspiring the people to write the words that, that He wants to be written, but He doesn't do it in a sort of artificial, mechanical way, but rather uses even the education background of a person, the personality of a person, the influence of the person, how they got to where they are, even the language they learned, all kinds of different things to sort of weave together the right the right words and the right statements. And so it's much broader, bigger, and more all-encompassing than just sort of the dictation theory or mechanical theory of, mm-hmm. of inspiration. Um, and this is why we argue 
that that you have to you have to believe a God who's 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 powerful enough, sovereign enough to to do that, and you have to you have to believe that God can weave together a person's life like Paul, so that his education background and, and all these taught came together, so he could write books like Romans or First Corinthians and so on. And so that there's a certain implication there about the kind of God you believe believe in if, you, if that's your definition of inspiration. And so in, in part one of your book, Determining the cana- uh, Canonical Model, you defined canonical model as a way of describing a particular canonical system, which includes the broader method- methodological, epistemological, and most importantly, yes, theological framework uh, for how canon is understood and how canon is authenticated. Uh, can you talk about how there is not just one definition of canon. Yeah, so in my book, I lay out these different canonical models, and and so part of the rationale is, if we're asking the question, how we know, I, I use the first part of the book to tell people the, the different answers that have been given to that question. So there's all these different groups out there, different theological systems and and uh, and, and theological convictions that say, well, we can answer that question this way or that way, and there's numerous different models out there on how to answer the question. And I, I don't think all the, all the models work. Um, I think some of them end up getting you to the same place, 27 books, but I think the, mat- the, the, the method matters. Mm-hmm. Um, how you get there matters. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a taxonomy, if you will, of all the different sort of answers that have been given to the question of how we know over the years. Now, built, built within that uh, system of canonical models are, are different definitions for the word canon. Mm-hmm. Um, different models are going to define it differently. They're going to they're use a different definition. And this, of course, is what creates the complexity and ambiguity about it all is because sometimes people debate over canon and they don't realize that, that they're actually using the term in different ways. And so when they disagree, they, they may not even understand the source of their disagreement. It may just be they're using the term in different ways and, and uh, therefore just talking past each other. So part of my book was designed to try to eliminate a lot of that by defining and clarifying and, and laying out all the different models. And could you give an example, especially because uh, if, if I'm correct here, you wrote this book uh, specifically for uh, individuals like Bart Ehrman, correct? What, what do you well, say? I wrote it for my students. Um, I, I wrote it for my students to, to under, and for believers in general to understand that we have an answer for canon. But certainly the conversation partner for much of the book was critical scholarship, okay. but it was also other groups too. Um, certainly there's other groups in play. I mean, you mentioned Roman Catholics. That's, they, they have a model. Mm-hmm. Existentialists have a model, and numerous other groups have models. Okay, and so can we? Uh, can you talk a little bit about the the critical scholar, or the critical view of canon uh, from from their perspective? Before we jump into the Roman Catholic uh, model, because I think that one that one's very important as well. well how, how, do they, how do how do they determine canon? Well, the very first model I address in, in the book is what I call the historical critical model, and that is sort of the the, the type of model you're going to find at any major university, you know, taught by a critical scholar. Uh, and they argue that canon effectively is just a purely human product. And what what, what I mean by that is that they argue that the, the canon is just the accidental result of a bunch of historical circumstances that led Christians in the 4th century to pick a bunch of books. And those books are no better, no more valuable, no more significant than any other books they might have picked because it's just what human beings do. is a purely non-divine, non-sort of uh, God uh, sort of directed thing that, that that people do and and you know when when people get together they like to pick books that are authoritative and so they happen to pick these but of course according to most critical scholars they could have picked a whole different set of books and it wouldn't have mattered um when, when they say mattered what they mean is that there's no books any better more valuable more true than others it was just arbitrary accident of history um now that that idea of canon is quite common um mm-hmm. and this is this is why people think that 
you know, books like the Gospel of Thomas, you know, that got left out, but it, but it could as well just found its way in, and it, and it would have been a very different version of Christianity. And who's to say that the Gospel of Thomas isn't right, you know? And so there's that whole line of thought that comes from the, the historical critical model. So I do spend some time talking about that. Now, that model doesn't really try to justify canon. They just try to say it is what it is. There's, there is no right books or wrong books. They're just books. Here's the 27 they ended up with. We can explain why they ended up with these maybe in some ways. That doesn't mean they're right. There is no right or wrong books. They're just books. And so, yeah, I guess now we could go ahead and dive into the Roman Catholic view of, of, of canon. So how can, can you unpack that for us? Yeah, so, um, you know, you've got the historical critical model. I just explained on one side. What, what some people see is almost the sheer opposite is the Roman Catholic view, mm-hmm. which is the Roman Catholic view says, no, God was very involved. Um, it was very, very divinely uh, scripted. In fact, they would argue that the church itself um, is uh, an entity that, that when it officially declares things and, and determines things through the, the magisterium, through the pope, that these are infallible declarations, that, that God is speaking authoritatively through the church. And so uh, fundamental to the Roman Catholic view of canon is the Roman Catholic view of the church. The church is the mouthpiece of God. There's an abiding apostolic voice there where it speaks authoritatively and and, and uh, can still deliver inspired teaching. And so if you ask a Roman Catholic how you know which books are in the canon, they have a very simple answer, and that is the Church tells us mm. which books are in the canon. Um, and, you know, thanks to Mother Church, we can know uh, which books are in. Now, here's an irony that most people don't realize, though. As I just said, at the surface, the Roman Catholic view looks looks like the opposite of the historical critical view. But that's actually only a surface difference. One of the things that I've, I try to point out in the book and that I've observed even myself over the years since writing the book is how similar the two views are in other ways. And let me explain what I mean. Both the Roman Catholic view and the historical critical view actually both have the same general take on the first four centuries. Hmm. They basically argue that it's in disarray. They argue that Christians disagreed. They argued that it was kind of theological chaos and that no one knew what to read and that no one agreed on books. And it wasn't until the 4th century that the, the church had to swoop in to save the day. The Roman Catholic Church says the, the church swooped in to save the day under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and then cleared up the mess. You know, Bart Ehrmantide say, yeah, the church stepped in and picked books arbitrarily, but that doesn't make them any better than any, anyone else. Mm. Um, but both have the same premise, which is that the church was in disarray before there was an official declaration. Uh, I disagree with both views on that ground. I, I don't think that the, the things were near the disarray they maintain. And certainly I disagree with Roman Catholicism that the church has infallible authority to pick books. Uh, just real quick, um, in the Roman Catholic model, uh, known uh, in your book you have known as a trifold authority structure, doesn't that contradict uh, just with Scripture and tradition and the magisterium? Um, I mean, the Bible says one thing, but the tradition says another. Like, do they see that and run and problems and with that? Well, yeah, I think what you're getting at is once you build a, a, a multi-dimensional authority structure like Rome has done, you have the problem of agreement amongst those authorities. Yeah. Now, in other words, if those authorities are going to be sustained as authoritative, they got to agree with each other because obviously God can contradict himself. Yeah. So now you're faced with a problem, which is how many of the church's subsequent teachings since the time of Jesus contradict what the Gospels and what the New Testament writers say? Um, and, of course, Rome would say they don't. Protestants would say they do. Um, you know, we would argue there's numerous things that have been taught by Rome that we find highly problematic when you actually look at the 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, this isn't the time to go through the list, of course, but, yeah. but, but you're right. That's a, that's a real problem, I think, for the Roman view, which is that you've got to show that every 
subsequent view of the church is is backed up, or, or at least not con- not contradictory with mm-hmm. the, the claims of the New Testament. So I, I have this clip of Dr. James White. Um, he and and uh, and I just want to play it. He's debating uh, Madrid, and it's on the the topic of sola scriptura. And this is a common objection towards uh, Protestants uh, from the Catholic view. And so I just wanted to play it. It's like what thirty seconds. I showed it to Steve, and so uh, I just want to play it for you and kind of just use is that. Is it as White a or Madrid? You're playing for me. Madrid. Okay. Yeah, Madrid is talking. It's he's he's given the uh, very very common objection uh, towards Protestants in that you know we gave you the Bible. So yeah, I'm just gonna play it real quick, and it's only like 30 seconds max. But I, I think this is gonna be a good good clip to use as a springboard a springboard into our discussion. So here you go. As well you shouldn't, Mr. White. As well you shouldn't. I found it interesting though that you part of your appeal was to tradition. That nasty word again. You, you said it was not testified to by other Christians. It was not historically regarded as scripture. Here again, Mr. White is, enga- or Mr. White is engaging in filching Catholic tradition, but not admitting that he's actually taking it. He's using it, but he won't admit it. That's what's going on here. Second of all, he says that without an infallible authority, you can't know what the canon of scripture is. Well, Mr. White says, this is our only infallible authority. So Mr. White, here it is. Where does the Bible tell you which books belong in the Bible? He can't tell us that. There's no inspired table of contents. It's like a dog chasing his tail. He says, I believe scripture is inspired. It's the only infallible authority. Well, how do you know that infallibly? Well, because the scripture. Well, where does the scripture tell you that? Well, it doesn't. So he just has to go around in circles, and he won't admit that he's appealing to the tradition of the church. The fact is, he has those 27 books in his Bible because the Catholic Church said those were canonical. Mm. So, uh, did you hear that uh, clearly, Dr. Kruger? Yeah, yeah, I heard it. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, so th- th- there definitely is a, is a lot to unpack, but um, I guess I'll just ask the question and, and kind of what, what Madrid was getting to. By the way, for our listeners, uh, Patrick Madrid, he's a uh, Catholic apologist. And so, did the Roman Catholic Church give us the canon that we have as Protestants today? Yeah, this argument by Madrid is really common amongst Roman Catholic apologists. I think it just gets recycled around it does. different ones. I, I don't really know who came up with it originally, it's that you don't have an inspired table of contents uh, <laughs> argument. Um, and the argument basically is, you know, what you really need as Protestants is another document telling you that the first 27 documents are inspired. So what you what you Protestants really need is effectively a 28th book that would be the table of contents that would then tell you the other 27 books belong there. Um, but you don't have that. And if you don't have that, you're, you're sunk. Uh, that, that whole argument falls apart on all kinds of levels. One of the main ways you can see how it fall, falls apart is if you call their bluff. Let's imagine, hypothetically, of course, we don't have this mysterious 28th document. But let's imagine, hypothetically, we, we're digging around, and we found an inspired table of contents um, that tells us the first 27 books were, were, were from God. There's no way the Roman Catholic Church would accept that, because what they would say is, well, how do I know the 28th book is inspired? Um, and then then if you said, well, what if we found a 29th book that tells us the 28th book was inspired, that tells us the first 27 were inspired, then they would just ask the question, well, I don't know the 29th book is inspired. In other words, what you realize from the Roman Catholic view is that by definition, no book, and for that matter, no authority they claim could ever be self-authenticating. You, you always have to have some external source um, to show you that something is, is, is valid. And so it's 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 a, it's a red herring because even if we had it, they wouldn't be satisfied. No. They would just say, "Well, look, you can't no. do it that way." Now, of course, the irony I always point out is 
if you say that, that no authority can be self-authenticating, then that, that actually puts the Roman Catholic view in a bit of a pickle because we can just simply turn the tables on them and say, well, how do you know the church, how do you know the church is infallible? Yeah. Um, and once you ask that question, you, you're going to, you're going to see yeah. things unravel really fast you in do. the Roman Catholic view. Yes. Yes. And so this leads me to, to another question is does, uh, and this, this is a loaded question by the way, but does scripture teach sola scriptura? Cause that's another objection that, you know, wh- where, where does it in, 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 in the new Testament teach that, uh, the doctrine of sola scriptura, you won't find it. And I, I would like to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, this is again, I think an overstatement. Um, you have to understand what the doctrine of sola scriptura is. Our, our, our doctrine of sola scriptura is that scripture is the highest and most ultimate authority we have. Now the Roman doesn't say that we're, that the scripture is the only authority we have. We believe the church has a, a authority and a level of authority, but we would argue that Scripture is the highest authority we have. Now, what the Roman Catholics would say is, well, hold on a second. You know, inspired prophets have the same level of authority as Scripture. So in order to get to sola scriptura, you actually have – it's a multi-pronged argument. One is you have to show that Scripture is God's Word, and there's nothing more high, higher authority than God's Word. That's quite easy to show. And then we also would want to show, and we think this can be shown too, that there, there isn't the expectation that we have other sources outside of Scripture now that speak with the same authority as Scripture. Fundamentally, what the Roman Catholic view is, is the idea that they have a living apostle, namely the Pope. Um, that's the essence of their view. And so now we got to get, it, get into issues of, of, uh, of apostolic continuation and whether we should expect the apostolic office to be around today. But we think that argument also can be made from Scripture. So, you know, if they're looking for a verse of the Bible that says something like the Bible affirms sola scriptura, of course you don't find it like that, but you find it by piecing together a number of very clear lines of argument that lead you to the inescapable conclusion that God's Word is the place you should be looking and not to a fallible uh, a church throughout the ages. There's no indication anywhere in the Bible that the church is is the inspired and fallible voice of God. It just isn't there. Mm, yeah. And, and another thing I wanted you to touch on, because I think B.B. Warfield has wrote about this as well, and this goes back to the verse that, that I'm talking about here is, uh, or it said at the beginning of the podcast, 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17, the, the whole idea of all Scripture being God-breathed in all of Scripture finds its origin in God, and so therefore that leads to that is the highest and final authority, and that therefore by definition makes it inerrant and uh, and infallible. And I, I definitely want you to talk about that because I think that that was a very um, paradigm shifting thing for me, as as simple as it sounds. And if you could just talk about that for a sec. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's a key verse for everybody yeah. because it affirms biblical inspiration and biblical authority. Here's the trick, though, is that Roman Catholics would, would, would agree with us that that verse teaches that the Word of God is inspired and authoritative. Uh, they're, they're, they would just simply say that the Word of God is not the only thing that's inspired and authoritative. You can get it from other places. So really, the debate over Sola Scriptura isn't really a debate over the inspiration of Scripture. Mm-hmm. It's really a debate over whether it's the only inspired source of divine revelation in the church. And to make that argument, you use a passage like 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, but you also use other passages too um, that that would, 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 would sort of make our case that we wouldn't expect the church to speak with, with an infallible, authoritative head. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as Protestants, we, there's only one head for the church, it's Christ. There's no, there's no uh, popish, you know, you know, see of Peter kind of head. We see that nowhere in the Bible. And what about the, um, you know, obviously the, the Roman Catholics view Scripture um, needing to be uh, externally authenticated, but it is true that within the first and second century, there was already um, Christians 
already they, they already had the 27 books that we have and they were already recognizing them as as canon uh, I mean, as as god breathed correct yeah, actually, this is one of the rebuttals I bring up in my book. So the argument from, from Rome is you can't know without the church, right? That's yeah. the assess, yeah, yeah. Uh, essential argument. We, we think that's not borne out historically at all. And you know, what's the earliest church councils that even talked about the canon? Well, the earliest ones you even see talking about the canon are, are, are fourth century. Um, you know, you're talking about you know, Laodicea, Hippo, and Carthage. And they, they weren't even universal councils; they were regional. But let's let's even imagine for a moment that the canon was decided there, which of course isn't the right way to understand those councils. But let's just assume that it was. Are we just are we to say then that for four centuries the church didn't know what books to read? Yeah. Historically, it doesn't bear itself out because we. I make the case in this book and in my other book, the question of canon that the historical evidence for an early received canon is 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 quite good, and so apparently Christians could know without any formal ruling from the church. And the other thing I would add here is, what about the Old Testament books? I mean, during Jesus's day, he seemed to know, and his compatriots seemed to know, and even his theological opponents, the Pharisees, seemed to know which books were in the canon and which books were which weren't in the canon, because they always were arguing over how to interpret Scripture, but they never argued over which books belong in, belonged in Scripture. So when it comes to the Old Testament canon, who, who, what, what infallible church told them which books belonged? Uh, in the Old Testament canon. Um, apparently they knew. How did they know if you need the Pope to tell you? So once again, the idea that you need the church to know just doesn't get borne out historically. Mm. And during, even with uh, in the Old Testament, we see the destruction of the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, and it still remain the Old Testament they knew, right, which was the canon of the Old Testament, the words of God. That's even, right. So even, when you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament's actually a great testing ground, because when you see that, that, that there was wide agreement on which books were in the Old Testament during the time of Jesus, the only conclusion you reach is there must be a way to know apart from official institutional declarations, because there was no official institutional declaration that picked the Old Testament. And this is, I think, inescapable when it comes to the old, and I would argue the same for the new. So how do we know as Protestant Christians, uh, Michael, that the Bible is God's word to us? Well, of course, that's the whole point of my book. <laughs> right. So um, it's a, there's a, a long answer to that um, in the book. I'll, I'll, the, the, the short whittled down answer. The Reader's is Digest I argue version. In the, what's that now? The Reader's Digest version of it. <laughs> yeah, Reader's Digest version. That's right. I mean, the short answer is I argue in my in my book that there's three complementary ways to know which books belong in the canon. Um, one way is by uh, looking to see which books are apostolic, mm -hmm. the books that, that, that contain authoritative apostolic teaching, and we can, we can probe into that on historical grounds. Mm -hmm. a, second is, is, a second way is from the books themselves, and this is a larger argument I make in the book about looking for what, we, what I call divine qualities in books. Mm -hmm. and this, is, this is usually what people mean when they talk about books being self-authenticating, mm -hmm. is there's some indicators, some marks, some characteristics that make a book uh, evidently from God. And then thirdly, I actually argue, and this is shocking to some people perhaps, I actually argue that the church can show us which books are in the canon. Hmm. And I, I don't make that argument because suddenly I'm a Catholic and believe the church is infallible. Um, I make that argument because I think the church reliably responds to God's Word, and that's a, a key way to think of it. It reliably responds. If God's Word is given to the church, by the help of the Spirit, we have a reason to think it's reliable. The church would react, respond, and affirm 
those books from God. And so the, the, my, my trust in the church's conclusions is not so much because I think the church is infallible. My trust in the church's conclusions is because I'm so convinced of the power and the self-authenticating voice of Christ in those books that the church would respond by the help of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Can you touch on the divine qualities? I know we're, we're running out a little bit on time here, but if you could touch on the divine qualities of Scripture and, and how that points to a self-authentication, that that would be awesome. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So this usually is new territory for people, mm-hmm. and, and certainly in this conversation, we'll only scratch the surface, so I encourage the listeners to, to, to read those sections in my book, because what they might be surprised to know is that the idea of divine qualities authenticating books is not something I came up with. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, not only is it richly part of the Reformation heritage, particularly in Calvin and Owen and, and so on, but it also goes back even to patristic sources, and I mentioned those in my book as well. And the idea is is that basically the books of the Bible reflect God's nature. Hmm. Um, it's not that different than the way we look at natural revelation. If I look at the sunset or natural revelation and I say, oh, I, I can tell you that, that, that that's from God, and someone goes, well, how? And I can say, well, it's, it's beauty, it's vastness, it's scope, it's intricacy, et cetera, tells me the created world is from God. Of course, that's a biblical argument. Well, we can do the same for, the, for, for, for special revelation, hmm. for the Bible. We can see God's fingerprints all over it. Now, I mentioned several divine qualities in my book. I only mentioned one here, and that is uh, what the divine quality of unity and harmony. Hmm. Uh, the remarkable unity and harmony shown throughout the extensive uh, collection, not just the 27, but the 66 books of the canon, I think are a divine mark. I don't think you can fake it. I don't think you can sort of, you know, by fraudulently means sort of mimic that. I think there's no way to explain it aside from... Uh, divine uh, involvement, that you could get that many different authors at so many different places across time to agree theologically on a unified story of redemptive history. Hmm. Um, and, and what I tell people is that, look, the, the way to authenticate canon is to realize is that these aren't, these aren't 66 individual books, although they are, they actually are linked together in one story. And you, to coordinate that kind of books to tell one massive story of redemption just cannot be done on a human level. Sure. That's just one example of the kind of thing I argue for in the book. Yeah. Hmm. I find one of the things too that uh, when I read the Bible, it it uh, it is a filter through which to understand the world around me. You know, it, it not only tells me who God is, it it shows me who I am and helps me to make sense of of what I see in the in the world around me. You know, the the, the sin around me, the fallen nature of man, and it's like no other book in the world. You know, it's just a revelation of who we are and who God is. And, you know, I think in that way, it's, it's definitely self-authenticating as well. Absolutely. In fact, I have a phrase for that in my book. I call that the power and efficacy of Scripture. Mm, yeah. um, and, and what I mean by that is it's not just the Scripture says things, but the Scripture does things. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it actually does things in the reader. And yeah, the hearer, exactly. and it actually uh, enlightens and gives wisdom and brings conviction and brings change. And, 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 you know, people will dismiss that as irrelevant, but actually the Bible itself uses that uh, language to talk about, um, you know, what we see in God's Word and how we identify the power in it. Mm-hmm, sure. um, and so, yeah, I, I have an extensive section on this. And, of course, there's all these objections people have to divine qualities, right? People say things like, well, if they're there, why don't more people see them and these sorts of things? I get into all that in the book and, and talk about the, 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 the various subjections people have leveled against the concept. 
you know, Dr. Kruger, I just uh, can't help but think just in uh, the book of Matthew in chapter two, when uh, Herod uh, uh, found out that uh, uh, there was a, a king to be born and he gathered with all the, the chief scribes and they had a goal to scripture to, 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 to find out where the Messiah was to be born. And I was just thinking of that right now and just right there, you know, we see in the New Testament, Matthew, then he's telling the story of where uh, the Messiah or Christ was going to be born. And they themselves knew that scripture was true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, there's a sense in which they already were recognizing that this is the go-to spot yeah. for for questions about, you know, messianic status of Jesus and, and many other questions. Uh, and, and even on the, the self-authenticating, uh, the divine qualities, going back to what Steve was saying, uh, I believe in one of your lectures, whenever I was listening to, you shared a, a testimony of an atheist who was uh, obviously he was objecting to Christianity, and he said for himself, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and read the Bible. Um, and yeah. and I, I want you to share that with, with our listeners before we kind of land the plane here in the podcast, because I think that, that, help, that happens multiple times to people. I've read yeah. that over and over exactly. again when people read the Bible. It's not like any ordinary book. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you could just kind of maybe share what, that, that testimony, and maybe if you have another, share that one as well. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I've given so many lectures over the years. I think I remember <laughs> the story. I don't know if I remember the name off the top of my head, yeah. but there's been numerous conversions of folks over the years who, who, who starting out intently desirous to destroy Scripture, decide, well, I better read it if I'm going to destroy it, and they begin to read it. And this is separate, by the way, from the historical investigation side. We all know the Josh McDowell story, um, which is a great story in its own right of, you know, I'm going to historically investigate these books. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about just reading them, just, just figuring out what they say. And this sense that you realize that you're not reading it, it's reading you. You, you realize there's a sense in which it's, it's probing into you rather than you probing into it. Now, in awareness, you're reading a book that's alive. One, one of the examples I get from early Christianity is the example of Tatian. Now, Tatian was a second century pagan philosopher. This happened to him. He ended up becoming a Christian and actually ended up writing a very famous harmony, harmony of the Gospels called the Diatessaron. But Tatian's conversion story is very similar, which is he decided he's going to read these Christian books. And when he did, he, he said, I heard the voice of God in them. I mean, basically recognized that God was speaking through them. Um, and this is an evangelistic tool I don't, I don't think we give enough credit for. You know, we, we assume that, that non-Christians are only going to be persuaded if we give them a, a dump truck load of, of historical facts. Actually, right. I'm, I'm not convinced that's the case. Hmm. I'm convinced that, that it's not wrong to do that, and, and, and on occasion it may be, you know, helpful, but I, I think we underplay the power of God's Word. Yeah, amen. The best yeah. apologetic is the Bible itself. <laughs> yeah, my mom, Absolutely. my mom does a good job about that. She just, she'll tell an unbeliever, just go read the Bible, here's a Bible, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, and yeah, that's so true. Amen. So, yeah. Michael, uh, the reason that this is ultimately important is because it's from God's Word, from his Bible, from the Bible that we get the gospel. And uh, so we like to close out each of our podcasts with just a clear presentation of the gospel. So would you be willing to do that for us today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I talked a minute ago about the the one story of Scripture, that it's 66 books in our canon, but they tell one story. Hmm. And that one story actually is, is, you know, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. What that means is that God made everyone. Uh, and he's the Lord of the universe, and he's the king of all. Um, secondly, that people have rebelled against him, broken his law willfully, intentionally, and are culpable for it, and stand under his judgment as a result. And then thirdly, God, by his grace, has sent a Savior to save people from that 
uh, sentence from their sins through Christ and through Christ alone by his death on the cross. And for those who believe in him, not only do you have hope of salvation, uh, but you also have hope of that fourth step in the in the story, mm-hmm. which is consummation, that yeah. one day uh, God will return not just to deliver his saints, but to renew the world and to give people resurrected bodies and a a new heavens and a new earth. So it's a, it's it's the ultimate story. It's the archety- archetypal story. Mm, um, and uh, it's a story of 66 books, and they all tell the same one. And so that's the that's the reason why canon matters, because in it is the story of Jesus. Yes. And, um, and uh, it, it's his book, and, and it's his story. Amen, amen. Yeah, amen. Well, well, for our audience, where can uh, our listeners find the canon man himself? <laughs> <laughs> Best place to get more is my website. Yeah. So I have a website called Cannon Fodder. Mm-hmm. That's one N. So it's a pun. If you don't get the one N, you won't get the pun. <laughs> Cannon Fodder. And you can listen, to, you can find it just by Googling my name, Michael J. Kruger. My website has access to all the different books I've written, uh-huh. uh, links to my book reviews, articles, uh, obviously blog posts, and there's, there's a number of videos and lectures and other downloadable material on there. So that's the best place to go, just to get more. Yeah, yeah. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, 45 minutes ain't going to do it with no. with this topic. Yeah. <laughs> you got to keep reading. You did forewarn us about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, just th- thank you so much for tuning in. Ple- again, please share. Um, and if you would like to support Bridge Ministries, please visit us at www.bridgebookstexas.org. Hit the about slash giving page. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, we're a uh, Christian bookstore and coffee shop. And uh, you know, we're not just that, but we are nonprofit. Com- nonprofit. Yeah, yeah, we're we're completely dedicated as well to discipling and equipping Christians. We have Bible studies here um, for those who are in our community who are listening. You could register uh, for Bible studies on the uh, uh, on the Bridge app or on our website, and just come check us out. So, uh, but as always, whenever we end this podcast, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will see you on the next podcast. Thank you. Peace. Later.